Hi to all our listeners. I'm Jaime Alfonso Zobel de Ayala, Head of Business Development and Digital Innovation at Ayala Corporation, fiddling in for my co-host, Nicolas Vivero of Penn Brothers. Welcome to another episode of Makati Business Club's Global Ideas Podcast, serving bite-sized information and inspiration for business leaders on the go. In each episode, we tackle global trends and concepts that pose significant impact on local business. We follow each podcast with a virtual event to dive deeper into the topic and its business opportunities. So stay tuned for the event details. Today, we're so excited to be kicking off the first episode of a series we're running on ESG that we're calling Woke or Broke? Is ESG at a Crossroads? The series will cover what ESG considerations mean for businesses in the long run and just how meaningful measuring and reporting ESG initiatives are as the framework continues to gain popularity. Some companies have raised questions about the importance and priority we should be giving ESG considerations, especially as we deal with rising prices and geopolitical tensions, forcing governments and companies to rethink their decarbonization timelines and initiatives. In the first episode of our Woke or Broke series, we will focus on ESG's environmental track. We are thrilled to have with us today our guest speakers, Professor Caroline Flammer from Columbia University and John Davis from South Pole. Thanks so much for the kind invitation and for the kind introduction. I'm Caroline Flammer. I'm a professor of international and public affairs and of climate at Columbia University. And I'm also the director of the Sustainable Investing Research Initiative. I mean, thank you so much for the introduction. Very kind of you. And um, nice to be with you as well, Caroline. Yeah, my name is John Davis. I work with South Pole um, and I direct our business across the Asia Pacific region. I'm based in Sydney in Australia. I've worked with South Pole for seven years and worked across our, our three businesses, which include carbon credit project development, where we've been present in Southeast Asia since we began as a company six years, 16 years ago, across our climate solutions business line, where we provide an advisory and carbon offsetting uh, function. And finally, in our climate investments business, where we enable companies to invest in, in climate impact projects across the world. So delighted to be with you today. Caroline and John, we really appreciate you both joining us today and having individuals with your credibility to talk about such an important subject to our community here at the Makati Business Club is, is really a privilege. So thank you and welcome to the show. To kick things off, I think we should give our listeners a, a quick 101 on ESG. While it's been a hot topic recently, ESG can also be a very confusing concept to grasp, admittedly. Caroline, could we invite you to try and simplify such a complex topic? What exactly is ESG and why should businesses care? Thanks so much. Good question. So ESG, broadly speaking, refers to the environmental, social, and governance practices of companies. Now, you're asking the question, why should business care? Well. In order to answer that question, let me take a step back and look outside of the window and see, you know, what are the kind of current trends that are going on that managers, executives, as well as investors may want to consider. 
correct. So first of all, it goes without saying, there are increasing risks and costs um, that companies face related to climate change. Secondly, governments increasingly take actions to curb climate change. And third, it's also society, society at large, communities that make increasing pressure on companies to address environmental and social issues. And then you also have consumers. Consumers increasingly show demands for more environmental and uh, ethically sourced products, for example. And companies also, you know, their employees, they are very sensitive to the company's business practices. And so, for example, research has shown that companies with superior environmental and social uh, business practices, it's easier for them to, to attract, motivate, and retain talented employees. So if you take all these together, it is perhaps not surprising that even investors, so the company's investors, increasingly show interest and demand of the portfolio companies to improve their social and environmental responsible business practices. So, you know, why should business care? I think these are many reasons. Thanks, Caroline. I think you make a really good point. You know, I think there always seems to be higher standards that companies hold themselves accountable to. And most importantly, I think you've made a good point why we should care. ESG is a concept that's relevant to companies because it describes the impact they have on all stakeholders, whether it be employees, customers, or investors. And this is an important concept because it describes not only the impact that they're making to those stakeholders, but how they measure themselves relative to that impact. There's always been debate around ESG, as I'm sure both of you are very well aware, with some arguing that ESG may be more about businesses looking good rather than doing good. That seems to be a concept that is becoming a little bit more visible lately. The concept of ESG as a way for public companies to commit to reporting standards that demonstrate their accountability to all stakeholders, not just a fiduciary duty to shareholders. One of the most common examples of this issue of using ESG to look good rather than do good is the use of carbon offsetting. What are your thoughts on this, Caroline? Let's weigh the opportunities and concerns or pitfalls of ESG, particularly when it comes to environmental sustainability. Let me try to take a stab at this one. Um, so, you know, before I just highlighted opportunities and uh, demands that are out there on companies to pursue more sustainable business practices, correct? And so, you know, to some extent, it's, it's exciting to see that there are more and more businesses and investors that get into this space and aim to improve their sustainable business practices. Now, let me take again a step back, correct? Move a little bit away from business practice right away and just state the obvious. We are in the midst of multiple crises. This includes climate change, this includes biodiversity loss, and this includes several other issues such as poverty and social inequality, et cetera. Now, the typical first reaction by society, by businesses, as well as by academics, is it's the government's role to take actions and regulate. And yes, this, is, this would likely be the first best and the most efficient, effective way how to, for example, mitigate climate change and biodiversity loss. 
But unfortunately, many governments around the world, they don't take sufficient actions or whatever actions they are taking, it's not sufficient because otherwise we would not be in these multiple crises, correct? And so this puts the spotlight on the private sector. What can the private sector do? This includes companies, corporations, as well as investors in order to help mitigate these system level challenges. Now, let me get back to the ESG practices. The current way ESG is often being practiced is our thinking is very much confined to the firm level or to the portfolio level. What do I mean? I mean that, for example, there is a lot of debate about, for example, disclosure of the emissions of mandatory disclosure of the emissions of companies, scope one, scope two, maybe scope three. So just for the general audience, Scope one refers to the direct emissions of the company, scope two to the energy consumption that the company uses, but then also scope three is kind of consumers, the value chain, the consumers and the suppliers. Okay, so this is uh, roughly speaking. Now, the way we assess companies and the way it's, it's being practiced by companies very much that, that they think about what is the direct under the direct influence of the company. So. If, for example, we were only to mandate scope one and scope two disclosure, which would already be an enormous improvement in this world compared to the status quo, the tricky part is that it may motivate some companies to start divesting their most emission intensive operations. Scope one becomes scope three. And so on file, it looks like the company cleaned up its act and became more environmentally sustainable but de facto, nothing changed with respect to climate change because all they did is just outsource climate change to some supplier, correct? A similar example I can make with investors that there is a lot of pressure on investors to divest, for example, fossil fuel industries. Now, if you truly care about climate change, divestment may not be the most effective way to get us to a greener path because what happens when we divest? Well, you dump the share from your own portfolio. Your portfolio looks like you cleaned it up, but actually you change nothing in the underlying sustainable business practices of that portfolio company you just divested from, correct? And some other investor picks it up um, and here we go. And the last example I'm gonna make is, is for, for example, with uh, the risk exposure of companies and hedging climate risks. There is no such thing like hedging climate risks, if you think about it. What you can do is hedge the portfolio risk, like the risk of your portfolio to climate news, but that does not take into account the implications of investments on climate change and vice versa, the increasing risks and costs of climate change on your portfolio's financial performance, okay? So our thinking, our frameworks, our theories, our practices in ESG currently are insufficient to really tackle these system level challenges. So this includes, for example, carbon offsets. Sorry, this was a very long answer to your, to your crisp question here. Um, but I hope it illustrates that the, the, the issue, the co potential concern here is way much bigger than just about carbon offsets. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Caroline. I mean, if I can add to that as well, I mean, we are all stakeholders here, right? Um, why are we all doing this? 
every country has signed up to the Paris Agreement. As a globe, we are trying to limit global warming to between one to one and a half degrees above normal. What does that mean? That means regardless, regardless of what our governments are doing, it's inevitable that we will have to be at net zero emissions, in fact, taking more carbon out of the atmosphere than we emit. How does that relate to carbon? Carbon offers an immediate way for us to avoid or start sequestering that carbon emissions as well, as well as looking at the obvious low-hanging fruit within a company where you can decarbonize, carbon offsetting offers the opportunity to have immediate impact as well. Thank you, Caroline and, and John. And, you know, it is a complex issue at hand here. And I think when it comes to the question of managing the issue between looking good and doing good under these reporting standards, uh, I think both of you have really outlined uh, the problem quite well. There seems to be an evolution to the, the approach to regulation, uh, particularly between the private sector and the public sector's purview. And that tension, it seems like, might not be getting us to a greener path that we all want. I can see your point, Caroline, in particular, on how to manage the issue of greenwashing. Government regulation and standardized accountability is a great way to ensure that a few bad apples don't really infect the broader efforts of the market trying to make change on these efforts by reducing their environmental impact. So it seems that the private sector regulation has, has come in to step in uh, to fill in part of that gap. And maybe that practice needs to evolve to get more standardized uh, regulation across the board that everyone does agree to in place by the same rules. John, with you in particular, uh, with all the incredible work that you and the South Pole team have been doing, you have an interesting portfolio of companies that have invested in net zero initiatives. From your experience and personal observation, what are businesses' usual attitudes towards ESG worldwide, especially on the environmental considerations? That's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. South Pole have worked with hundreds of, of organizations around the world now to create roadmaps and, and net zero emission targets. And it's super exciting and fulfilling work. I, I think from a business perspective, what we're seeing is, is there's no way that you can avoid making a conscious decision on what to do or not do when it comes to ESG, and in particular, the hot topic that is environment. You know, there, there is no board around on any company of size that can simply ignore this topic. They are asking the companies to and, and holding them to account. They're saying questions, you know, what are we doing? Is climate risk material to our business? And, and if so, what's our approach? What's our strategy? Environmental issues are integrally involved in business. You know, investors are also placing capital with this decision-making process in mind. They're looking at companies and their approach and, the, and their processes internally. What are we actually seeing from businesses? Well, I think within Asia itself, we're seeing an incredible change in attitude towards the environment and how companies are positioning themselves within relation to ESG. Globally, a huge number of organizations, I think last year actually doubled in terms of people approaching and setting net zero targets. Reflecting on that previous question as well, what we are also seeing is that the planning is currently not matching that ambition. So there are open doors for greenwashing accusations out there now. You know, step one is obviously setting out a plan, 
and then fulfilling that as well. So many, many of the conversations that we are having are really holding the hands of companies, helping them start. What is NITSO? How do we approach this? Very much as an advisor. Without doubt, all companies can do it. And we help companies set that trajectory and outline really clear, concise steps that give companies the tools and the products that they need to reach net zero. And I think we already see the impact of that as well. Those companies that have clear net zero transitions in place are less vulnerable to big shocks, whether they be from the recent rise in, in fossil fuel costs to even COVID-19. It makes a company more resilient and it mitigates those vulnerabilities to climate risks as well. So absolutely a very big transformation around the world, in particular with Asia in terms of the approach. And also, I think importantly, the urgency to understand net zero and pop those frameworks in place within organizations. Thanks for that, John. It's encouraging to hear that, that the companies you're dealing with are thinking deeply about this. And it's not only a broad discussion, but they're deploying capital into the solution and making it somewhat of a defensive strategy to make their companies more resilient to what's emerging as, as a very volatile environment moving forward. And if that's becoming a strategic or competitive advantage from your perspective, I think it's important that the rest of the market are aware of this, they get up to speed, and hopefully they consider the services of your firm as they seek out the tools to reach their goals here. Well, absolutely. Just to add there, I mean, it must be linked, right? Looking at this environmental and net zero strategies, it must be linked to a better outcome for the company. And, that, and that's something that, that's definitely key to, to our work as well. If I may just add something and very much in line with what John just mentioned, you know, it is so critical that companies really fulfill their pledges, correct? So many, many companies did make their pledges, which is exciting. But what we need is actions that follow and unfortunately, when you look at the average CEO tenure, for example, it is fairly short, correct? It's similar to like for politicians to some extent. And so this makes it very tricky that if we want to reach those targets, we need to take actions now and not to defer that, that planning, that, those investments. That's a fair point, Caroline. And I think, again, as we unwind uh, the complexity of this issue, I think you also bring up an interesting point that the interest between management and the long-term stakeholders that are involved, not only the constituents that are affected by the business, but also the shareholders, all those interests need to be aligned. And in some cases, this is a standard of accounting of responsibility that, that aligns those long-term interests here. The mandate of the Makati Business Club's Global Ideas Committee is to challenge traditional thinking among local businesses by introducing global trends and opportunities. In many ways, the supporters of the ESG framework make the most compelling cases when they demonstrate that the framework provides companies with long-term shareholder value. John, perhaps you can share with us what opportunities for growth and long-term shareholder and stakeholder value are realized by increasing attention on the environment? Yeah, exactly the question that we should be asking ourselves. And absolutely, as I referred to before, you know, increased attention on the environment must result in a better economic outcome for a company. And it does. In fact, we will have a net zero report that we're releasing next month that is going to focus precisely on this. I alluded to, to one of the more, I guess, defensive approaches before fossil fuel price shocks. 
many organizations realizing that they're vulnerable to these external shocks and, and thinking strategically about how they can place their company in a better position before the next one. You know, net zero's strategies definitely present a major opportunity to really reset the ambition of organizations, build resilience, and mitigate those vulnerabilities to shocks. So I think we see companies competing to prove their climate action to their consumer base that is increasingly more informed about climate change and also proving this to investors who want to know whether their investments are going to thrive in a, in a climate-warmed world. And we're seeing a lot of encouragement out there in the market as well. Even within some of the more challenging sectors, in particular in Asia-Pacific, we are seeing power generation, fossil fuel sectors, large materials companies setting emission reduction targets and net zero strategies. I think one thing that net zero does is, is provide a very clear climate journey that gives CEOs the direction they need to lead, and it provides very tangible ways to turn that ambition into action with energy and resource efficiency measures, um, looking within supply chains and, and targeting interventions and low carbon opportunities within your supply chain, and also within the product or service that you deliver. With that, um, what we see is clear growth opportunities and long-term stakeholder value, as well as shareholder value. It's clear that on top of the financial value, the stakeholders, or in particular, the employees within organizations, also want to work with companies that are doing the right thing, not just for the environment, but their local community, and also for the globe and where the globe wants to go as well. So yeah, to, to come back to the original question, absolutely, it's a virtuous circle. Setting those optimistic and difficult goals of net zero, without doubt, place a company to produce long-term shareholder value and stakeholder value over the long term. Add an additional uh, point, and I totally agree with everything that John mentioned, but I would also like to highlight the risk mitigation, correct? So in a sense of by helping to mitigate climate change, it likely helps decrease the long-term risk of climate change. And so therefore, you know, if you think about uh, the famous risk return ratio, correct, it should become more favorable over time. And I think one key question we want to ask ourselves, even if there is no outperformance, what's the alternative? Like in a sense of likely we reach a point where becoming more green for companies is not more profitable, but there's a trade-off, correct? There's a trade-off. If it's not companies that take actions, who will? Now, of course, you could say, well, it should be the government. <laughs> but that looks back to the original problem. What if governments don't take enough actions and or it's just not sufficient, whatever they are doing, correct? And so I think one important step forward is not to only look at what companies do in terms of their own environmental sustainable business practices and if these are investors, whether and how they engage with the portfolio companies to improve their sustainable business practices, but also, and importantly, whether and how companies and investors actually engage with policymakers and governments to trigger those very much needed public policies and government regulations to put in place, for example, climate policies, carbon taxes, etc., which would then also level the playing field for all the companies.
Thanks for that, Caroline and John. And and I think when answering the question, uh, where can we find opportunities for long-term shareholder value and stakeholder value when committing to these kind of standards and approaches? I think both of you have outlined that although it's a complicated issue, there are overwhelming benefits, not only from employing a defensive strategy in the sense that you're protecting yourself from, from market volatility, you're also having some sort of investor recognition, uh, considering that investors, particularly the large scale ones, are rewarding actions that align with stakeholder groups. And the customer perception is also something worth worth acknowledging as well, that, that customers are recognizing companies that take action that really affect their long-term interests. So all of this, as you had mentioned, Caroline, perhaps puts the private sector in a position to collaborate with the public sector and participate in the discussions in shaping what those regulations are and understanding what companies should be doing to provide long-term sustainable returns for themselves and their stakeholders. So thank you both for sharing that. And while I know there's a lot for us to, to get into in discussing these repercussions for long-term value, we'll be discussing these business opportunities in much more detail during our virtual event in November. With all that we've discussed in today's episode, I wanted to get your final verdict. Without saying why, as we can expound on your whys during the virtual event we have coming up, when it comes to environmental sustainability, is ESG a yay or nay for business? It's a yay for me, Jaime. Do good now. I couldn't agree more. I think the simplicity of those answers kind of cover it all. Um, it's a very high conviction that this is uh, something that the business community should be focusing on. Thank you, John and Caroline. We've explored ESG and environmental sustainability today, but we've only scratched the surface. We invite our listeners to join us and a special guest from the global investment company, Temasek, at our upcoming virtual event in November, where we'll be diving deeper into ESG's environmental track and highlighting how businesses can navigate and maximize this system to reap its benefits. We look forward to chatting with everyone to answer some questions you may have, as well as learn from your own experiences with ESG. I'm sure it would be an interesting exchange of insights. For more details on the event, feel free to shoot MBC an email at makadibusinessclub at mbc.com.ph. Thanks for joining today's episode and hope to see you at November's event.